Amen. You know, love is personified in 1 Corinthians 13. So it's portrayed like a person. And uh, I hope the dots are connecting that this person is ultimately Jesus. And when we read like the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, that, that we're both, you know, the elder brother and the, the younger brother who go astray. And, and in the story of the Good Samaritan, I mean, we were the one that was uh, on the side of the road, as Ezekiel says, wallowing in our blood. We were the one left, and God came to us and showed such compassion and mercy. God loved us so much, what did he do? He sent his one and only son. He gave his one and only son. God loves us, and I hope you're connecting the dots to see that it's ultimately it's a person. But as we follow him as Christians, we are learning how to love. And so I want to ask you a couple questions this morning. Would you say you're trending up or down in loving other people? Do you think you're on a trajectory to become a more loving person this morning? Are you a quicker forgiver? What kind of legacy do you want to leave when you leave this planet, which will be soon? None of us have any guarantees. What do you want folks to say about you after you're gone? And so we have to remove the barriers to love in order to grow in love. And so last week we talked about this analogy of a garden, and you can't bear fruit if the garden of your life is overrun with weeds. And so you have to uproot the weeds. So we're going to look at the six, six weeds this morning that have to be uprooted. And they're from 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read, I'm actually going to preach from the NIV this morning. Um, So this is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 6. It'll be a little different than than what you see on the screen, but that's okay. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Let me pray again for us. Father, as we look now at your, the word of God that's living and active, that divides even between joint and separates and judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, come and weed out uh, these weeds, breathe new life into us by your spirit that we would be filled with compassion and love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, uh, the pastors, we were on a Presbyterian retreat. We heard from a Presbyterian, you know, they bring in some of these all-star speakers to speak to us, and we had the privilege to sit under Dr. Tim Lane, who was a pastor at Clemson Pres years ago, but he's been teaching up with CCF in, in uh, Philadelphia for years. He's written a couple books, and uh, he was good. And he was sharing with us, he kind of introduced us to John Gottman and some of his stuff. And the interesting thing about that is John Gottman's not a believer. Uh, and his point to us is, rather than, you know, with anything, you have to take the meat and spit out the bones, okay? And a lot of times where unbelievers are right, we need to listen to where they're right. And this guy has done, he's been doing this, you know, he's like in his 70s. He's been doing uh, marriage stuff for years and years and years decades and decades, and he's actually has a lab. 
He calls it the love lab. And he flies these people in, or they fly him, they're paying the money. They, and they are completely monitored and evaluated. We're talking video cameras. We're talking every kind of hookup that's going to measure your pulse and your heart rate and all kinds of determine what, what your stress factors are and what's, what's causing the stress in your marriage. And um, there, there are lots of things that can bring conflict uh, into a marriage, and and just as Gottman lists some of these, and these aren't these aren't anything new to us. Here are some of the pressures, in case you've forgotten, uh, that bear down on a marriage: finances and the stress of of uh, meeting the monthly bills, and sometimes unexpected things. The difficulties with children and parenting and differences, expectations and frustrations regarding intimacy. In-laws and parents, our own health, sleep, or a lack thereof. Sleep is actually a pretty big issue if you're not sleeping. Grief and loss, huge. Pets, surprisingly, that was on the list. That's an, that's an issue. We have two. And cultural differences of where you've, how you were raised. And so as an expert looking into this, he... he in tracking these people, he's been able to track, I think it's like 85% accuracy if, if your marriage is going to divorce after watching people for a few days. And he has six warning signs. And I'm going to give you the six warning signs that he gives just so you can be on guard in your own marriage. Number one, the harsh startup. Okay? The harsh startup is, you know, it talks about love's not easily angered. Well, boom, the harsh startup is, boy, there's a harsh startup, and now we're in conflict, okay? Buttons got pushed, response of anger, that's the first bad sign. The next is the four horsemen, which he, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse for Gottman are criticism that moves to contempt. The contempt then moves to defensiveness, and in this defensiveness, there's often a harsh humor, lots of body language that's bad, rolling of the eyes, and a moving away from each other rather than to each other. And the last one and is stonewalling. And this is just, I'm tuning you out. I'm going to love you by ignoring you. And it's really just a terrible thing. But that's the worst one is just, I'm, I'm, I'm moving away from you. Um, and then the third sign of these six is flooding. And flooding is just this idea of where you get so angry that basically you're incapacitated. You're, you're, you should not be in any type of conversation because you are flooded. And this idea is that your uh, heart rate is up, your face is red, your nostrils are flaring. I mean, it's you know, all the bad signs of anger. Um, fourth sign is, is body language, which I already mentioned, this idea that you start to move away from each other the fifth sign, he says, is failed repair attempts. And in healthy marriages, they ha there's conflict, that, but there's good repair attempts. The repair attempts are successful. And some of those can be humor. And one of the examples he gives of a couple that got into an argument, and he's watching them, and, and they have enough emotional understanding of each other to realize this is a disaster. This is a train wreck in the making. We are, we are actively destroying our marriage here, and they're in this big argument, and she just gets to the point where she just sticks her, sticks her tongue out at her husband, and they begin to laugh because they realize, you know what, we're losing it, you know, and so there's a, that was a repair attempt, 
Okay, so repair attempts or, or successful repair attempts are what help a marriage. Failed repair attempts are when you try to fix it and it still doesn't work. And the last one, sixth sign, is bad memories, which is you begin to even reinterpret your past and you have hardly any pleasant things that you can remember doing together. Um, and so he's not a believer, but he's right with a lot of things that he's saying. And so, you know, as you think about these things and these warning signs, he also gives seven signs of a healthy marriage, and maybe we'll get to those another time. But I want to give some remedies this morning from the Word of God as, to, as we think about love. What, what is love? Well, you know, when you think, man, somebody, they love me well. When somebody really loved you, what does that mean? Is that just a feeling? What, 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 what is that? I mean, the Bible has, this is like the big thing. We are called to put on love. We're to follow after love. We're to abound in love. We're to do everything in love. We're to continue in love. We're to increase in love. We're to be fervent in love. We're to be consistent in love. We're to provoke each other to love. We're to be sincere in love. It's just on and on and on. I mean, I'm just getting started with, the, with Paul's writings. Love is everywhere. So what is it? Well, let's look at first what it's not, and then next week we'll look at what it is, because we're going to look at six things that it's not. First of all, it's not proud, okay? This is the arrogant person, and the word here literally, uh, when it says love is not proud uh, or does not boast, the word is actually a windbag. It's a blowhard. You think of bagpipes. This person is a bag of pipes parading out their accomplishments. Now, pride has a lot of faces, but underneath so many of these weeds, this is the big one. This is kind of the underneath taproot that's running through everything that destroys marriages and destroys families, is this pride that's a big barrier to love. It can be a windbag, but often has other looks to it, okay? So the question I want you to think about is, how do others feel around me when I am being prideful? And the answer is, they're going to feel judged. They're going to feel that they're not good enough and that what they're doing is not good enough. The word that the Bible uses a bunch is the word contempt, Okay, so listen just a couple of these examples. Psalm 123.3, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Okay, so what does this contempt look like? Well, in Romans 14, when it's talking about weak and strong brothers and accepting each other, it says, why do you judge your brother? There's the judging. Why do you show contempt? For your brother, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So on these gray areas in relating to eating and drinking, one brother drinks alcohol, another says he doesn't, and one's a vegetarian and one isn't, and one, they, they spend their Sabbaths differently, and our consciences land in different places. But Paul is warning us, for someone that lands different than you, and it could be somebody very close to you, are you looking with contempt or judging your brother or sister because they're not in a full alignment with you. See, contempt means to look down on, it means to reject, it, it, it's this pride, okay? And it's the tip-off verse that's before the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
So this tip-off verse that explains the whole parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the Bible says in Luke 18, 9, that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see, if you're treating someone with contempt, it's because deep down you really know that you're better than they are. You see, that that's whether it's a neighbor, a spouse, coworker, but deep down you think, I'm really better than this person. And there you have this contempt. Well, David Pallas in his book, Good and Angry, says that this prideful hypocrisy talks about how people in conflict are hypocrites. Say, so how are we hypocrites? Well, they dish out global condemnation while feeling outrage whenever they are mistakenly criticized regarding some tiny detail of a story. They grouse about their spouse spending $20 on some perceived friv frivolous thing while they're, they're not thinking twice about spending $500 on their own hobbies. They damn others as theological idiots and biblical ignoramuses while they are loveless and self-righteous. They defend the God of mercy mercilessly. They harshly accuse others of harshness. They get angry at angry people. They proudly judge proud people. They gossip about gossipers. You get it? You see, what's underneath this pride, this contempt? Well, the deeper issue, taking it down and looking deeper at the weeds, Richard Lovelace in his classic quote from the Spiritual Dynamics book says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure people, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from the Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. And this insecurity shows itself in pride. It's a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness and a defensive criticism of others. They naturally come to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to a legal pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity, like the elder brother. Here's an example of this going down deeper still. David Brainerd, in his journal, which is this wonderful book that uh, Jonathan Edwards printed of his diaries. And um, David Brainerd once wrote this insightfully about himself. He says, though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserve nothing, yet still I harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. When I prayed affectionately and felt some melting of my heart and love towards him, I hoped God would thereby be moved to care for me. So I thought that through my repenting and praising him and seeking him, I could make steps towards heaven. When my heart seemed to be full of love and faith, I felt that God would be affected by that and would hear my prayers for their sincerity. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. I told myself, God must accept you because look at how wholeheartedly you serve and seek him. Now here was the problem. When I had been fasting, praying, obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory to feel I was worthy. As long as I was doing all this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God, all for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. 
I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior and to be my own Savior. I was not worshiping him, I was using him. And then at that time, the true way of salvation opened to my mind. I saw so much of its wisdom and suitableness and excellency that I wondered, how was I ever blind to it? I wonder why everyone did not see this way of salvation, not by my own contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ. You see, it's easy to fall into this trap that really is all about the gospel. It's if we start living by grit alone rather than grace alone, then what happens is, is now you'll subtly start moving in this direction of you got to have present bulletins to prove your own righteousness, and it's going to lead towards contempt towards other people. Do we really have compassion that we realize that God has been completely merciful to me? Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions, number eight, was resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only on occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. You see, our understanding of sin should be like a pair of binoculars. Binoculars are great for taking things far away and bringing them up close. And that's how we tend to look at other people's sin, is bring them in close. Yet here's the irony. What happens when you flip the pair of binoculars? Everything gets really far away, right? Well, that's what we need to make the binocular flip and focus the inward stuff on ourself so that we really see that the root and seed of every sin is in our own hearts. So that's the first thing. So love's not proud. It's not arrogant. It gets rid of that self-righteousness. It's not rude. Number two, it doesn't, this word means doesn't act unbecomingly or dishonorably or with bad manners or inappropriately. I remember hearing Chuck Swindoll one time tell a story. He was driving down the highway and he inadvertently had gone into somebody's lane or didn't see the guy in the blind spot. And the guy came up next to him and was cussing him out until he realized it was his pastor. Um, love does not act unbecomingly. As Tony Evans, I heard it, I love hearing him preach, but he said, you need to quit all that cussing and fussing. Quit all the cussing and fussing. Okay? It's not rude. Love isn't rude. Love isn't self-seeking. Love isn't me first. It's, it isn't what it's about me. Love is you first. Love is what's this about. It's about you. Love doesn't levitate doesn't elevate itself, it's unselfish. It doesn't use other people, it doesn't exploit them, manipulate them for selfish purposes. John MacArthur says, love never demands uh, precedence, never demands recognition, never demands applause, doesn't demand consideration, doesn't care whether it's honored, whether it's elevated. I remember reading one of the biographies of C.S. Lewis, and I remember reading about his, he had this photographic memory that was just amazing. And you, you see this with these great scholars. They have these memories that they can just remember stuff. So anytime he was tutoring a guy one-on-one -on -one and the guy would start quoting some great poetry or great story, C.S. Lewis would help him if he got stuck at any point because he had already had it memorized. And so one of the students decided one day, you know what, let me try. So he quotes one of C.S. Lewis's poems. 
And C.S. Lewis says, well, I'm not familiar with that. Who's that? And he says, that's you. That was yours. And the writer writing the biography said, that was the thing about, you think about, if you wrote something, you would tend to remember it more, not C.S. Lewis. You see, he, he was so unselfish that he saw the greatness in other works, but his own, somebody quoted it, and he was like, I'm not familiar with that one. Who's that? Well, that one was you. I wonder if we're like that. Um, love doesn't seek its own. John the Baptist grasped this in that familiar passage where he's talking about the bridegroom is here. And John the Baptist says, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. I think sometimes we say he must, you know, I'm, I'm going to decrease, but I'm not real happy about it. That wasn't John the Baptist. He said, the joy of mine is now complete. He got more joy in seeing Jesus get the center stage. That's what he wanted. That's what he, he was pointing to him. That was his job. That's our job, point people to Jesus. Jesus, as you know, the famous passage that says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you remember the context? The context in which he gave it was a rebuke to the disciples who were arguing over who was going to be the greatest and who was going to sit on the left and who was going to sit on the right. And Jesus had to say, whoever will be great among you must be servant and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. And then he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We follow him because he's the one who saved us. William Barclay in his commentary said, there are only two types of people in this world. Those who are continually thinking of their rights and those who are continually thinking of their duties. Which do you tend to think about? Love is not easily angered. It's not easily provoked. Love has this long fuse. It's wet wood. It is really hard to ignite. You just can't get it going. How about you? Does your family have to walk on eggshells around you? Shh, daddy's home. Shh, don't wake her up, whatever you do. do, do does your family have to walk on eggshells around you? Do they know like, man, this will send her to the moon. Don't do that. The ESV says that love is uh, not irritable. And other translations say love is not easily provoked or easily angered. And so there's, there's like two different types of anger here the translations are bringing out. So the one kind of anger is like the explosion of dynamite with a, long, with a short fuse and boom. That's, we, we're, we know that kind of anger. The other, though, is like slow-burning diesel fuel that really stinks, okay, but it smolders. Which kind of anger, you know, you tend to show one or the other. They're both huge barriers to love, but let me kind of bring out each one. So David Pallison, again, his book on, on Good and Angry, which we have a lot of copies out on the book table, I encourage you to read it. He talks about where these words, you know, the etymology of these words, like anger. Anger comes from, it's this English word that comes from uh, two words, anguish and angst. And it's the idea that captures this distress of a person who feels contorted with intense pain and trouble all twisted inside when someone's mad and bent out of shape. That's the one kind of anger, okay? And we can see it and we, we know it, okay? The other, the word rage comes from the same root as the word rabies and rabbit. 
It's this idea of a violent raving fit. A mad dog goes mad in both senses, both aggressive and out of its mind. And so uh, if that is you this morning, if you are one of those raging people, anger is always a response of love. What are you loving so much other than God and your neighbor that you need to repent of? If you're a raging person, what are you loving so much that's not God and not your neighbor and you need to repent? That's the only thing that's going to bring down that raging is you got the wrong master where you're following in that area of your life. You're loving something way too much. The simmering anger often does great damage but it doesn't put holes in walls or slam doors really loud. This other one is just as dangerous, though, and Paul Miller describes this in his book, Love Walked Among Us, and he describes this low, leaking low-level irritability. You feel you have the right to be moody. You've earned it. It's a way of exacting emotional payment from a disappointing life. Grumpiness. This is irritable. Grumpiness provides momentary relief, but it's always a splitting of the self. I commit outwardly with my hands, but not with my heart. I go through the motions of love, but anger smolders just below the surface like a simmering rant. Like Judas in the betrayal of Jesus, outwardly I'm kissing, but inwardly I'm betraying. The result is I'm split. My will has slipped off the tracks of quiet surrender to the master, and I'm just going through the motions, and life ceases to be fun. If left unchecked, my inner moodiness begins to distort my heart and I slip into cynicism, which begins a downward trajectory into bitterness. It's not a good path, Paul Miller says, I agree. So that is not, those are weeds that gotta be rooted out. It keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that not the gospel in action? It keeps no record of wrongs. The word that's used there is legitimai, and it's an accounting word. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's why I didn't use ESV. I didn't like the word resentful, because I don't think that's anywhere close to the original language uh, in the ESV. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's, that's, NIV does a good job there. 2 Corinthians 5.19, I mean, this is the gospel. This is what we love to, we love to experience this, do we not? That, that, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The simple gospel message is this. Maybe you've been hearing this all your life. Maybe you've never heard this before. Here it is. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, God credits to Jesus' account your sin. And God credits to your account Jesus' righteousness. It's all about credit. It's a counting term. It's, it's imputing. He's imputed your sin on Jesus who knew no sin. He becomes sin for you on a cross and dies and hangs for your sin. But he also imputes to you his righteousness and you are now perfect and righteous and blameless before him. And your shame is gone. 
and you can stand boldly before God because you have a new record of righteousness. That's the gospel. Are we living that? Do we believe that? Because when we give that to somebody else and we keep no record of wrongs and you forgive somebody and you let it go, you are telling, I don't just believe the gospel, I live it. I'm applying it. It's the best thing we could do in our marriage, in our families, is to give them the gospel. Do we do that? You see, this morning... And in our lives, we either forgive others out of the pity that God shows to us or we hold on to unforgiveness out of pride. And this crazy, wicked thing called bitterness and unforgiveness, which is really the devil himself, and that's what he majors in. Bitterness and unforgiveness is wishing somebody was dead so much that I'll take the poison myself. That's what it is. Because when you do this, when you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, you're the one drinking the poison. There are negative health consequences that you bring on yourself when you refuse to forgive someone. You put yourself in prison, you throw away the key, and you wonder why you have high blood pressure, anger, anxiety, and depression, and insomnia. On the flip side, when you forgive, you not only free the other person, you free yourself. Psalm 4 is a great psalm for insomnia. Do you ever have trouble sleeping? I do sometimes. Psalm 4. You know, take, take two, two Advil. You know, take, take Psalm 4 and read it and love it. Psalm 4. Be angry. That's a command. Do not sin. That's a command. It's a double imperative. The be angry is for people that just try to stuff everything under the carpet and don't deal with it. But be angry, but do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Here's my translation of that. Quit rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing. Quit rehashing, quit rehashing, quit rehashing, quit revisiting, quit revisiting, quit revisiting. Relinquish, relinquish, relinquish. Remind yourself, remind yourself, remind yourself of the gospel. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord because Psalm 69.9 is ultimately about Jesus. And Jesus says in Psalm 69.9 that zeal for your house has consumed me, and it did consume him. Because the reproaches of those who reproach you, God, have fallen on me, as Jesus is saying. We're the ones who reproached him. We reproached God, and those reproaches fell on Jesus. That's the gospel. And he's kept no record of wrongs. He's hurled our sins as far as the east is from the west. So what are we doing holding something over our brother and saying, pay back what you owe me and choking him? You see, we have to get rid of those weeds, Let them go. Give it to the Lord. Humble ourselves. Let it go. And then we ask God, help us to be the kind of loving people we're going to talk about next week that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, this tenacious love that bears fruit for generations. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would change the trajectory of our life. 
where we are bent on self, where we are angry, frustrated, embittered, would you weed those things out? Thank you that you died on a cross, gave your life's blood to set us free from our sin, to turn the wrath away of our Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you stood in our place and became a ransom for many. And so we ask now, as you change the trajectory of our life, that we would begin to demonstrate this love, that we be patient and kind, not manipulating and using and being selfish and pouty, angry, grumpy, and irritable. May the gospel change us. May we see what we're really loving. And I pray it would be you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond and sing, uh, My Jesus, I Love Thee.